Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Kayla Mason. And my name may or may not be Todd Hicksonball. And we have a great episode for you today. Today, we are talking with David Burkus about his brand new book, Friend of a Friend. So David is a business expert. I believe he's a professor, right? Yeah, he is a professor of leadership and innovation at Oral Roberts University. He's a best-selling author, a sought-after speaker, and everything. Yeah, so I mean, he's kind of all over the place. I know he does a lot of teaching and stuff like that. And he's got an incredible TED Talk, which we'll link to in the show notes as well. So this guy is just a guru when it comes to leadership, when it comes to leadership in business and all of that kind of stuff. Super, super excited about this. Caleb. I'm reading one of his other books right now, and it's good. Yeah? Is this the oh. Learner's Corner resource of oh, the week? it is. It is. It is time for your Learner's Corner approved resource of the week. So my Learner's Corner approved resource of the week is a book by by David Burkus. It's called The Myth of Creativity. The Myth of Creativity. And basically, in this book, what he does is he goes through and he just dispels myths about creativity that people have come up with i'll give you an example one of them that he talks about is the myth of people are just born with it the g he calls it the gene myth and so what he says is hey you know people aren't just born with this um actually there's a lot of hard work that goes into it and so people don't just have crazy ideas that come no they've actually spent the last seven hours staring at a computer screen reading about something and all of a sudden they have an idea so great book there's a bunch of myths that he goes through and dispels in this book and then he also builds on top of it and kind of how we can begin to stimulate creativity in our own lives, in our work, um, and in our in our personal lives as well. This has been your Learner's Corner approved resource of the week. Awesome. That's great. And we're excited to bring this conversation to you. You may be wondering, why is Caleb's voice sounding a little bit off today? Because he's sick and dying. Because I have a cold. So He's a man cold. Yep. So you have man to, flu. You have to put up with uh, my less than stellar voice. Take some emergency. Today. Not yet. You gotta take that junk. Thankfully, you won't have to put up with this interview with David because it is absolutely incredible, and you're gonna enjoy it. So, without further ado, here is our interview with David Burkus. Well, David, we're so excited to have you on the Learners Corner podcast to talk about your new book, Friend of a Friend, today. Yeah, no, thank you guys so much for having me. David, before he starts asking his questions and being official, I need to know, what is your title? You, so you're, you're a professor, right? So like you give people tests? Uh, well, I don't actually I don't do tests, but yes. Um, you know, so yeah, I'm, I'm a professor. So I'm a technically associate professor of leadership and innovation at Oral Roberts University. Um, I'm not, I'm, I'm no longer a full-time professor. So the writing and speaking and traveling that's encompassed with that is sort of taking me out of the classroom such that I teach one class a semester. And then I do a lot in our, in growing our sort of executive education set. Um, so I do a lot of traveling and teaching for the university, but at other locations and like, you know, two or three day workshops and that sort of stuff now, um, as well. So in, you don't, you generally give adults tests in terms of executive <laughs> education. So I don't yeah. give a lot of tests in that regard. And the classes that I do teach on campus are still sort of very project based, but yes, I'm still in a classroom at least once a week with a bunch of undergraduates and I'm still the one in charge that they're looking to for like advice and guidance and that sort of is thing, which like is a, hugely scary. Is, it, is that like a humble brag to say that you're like a big deal now? <laughs> I feel like it is. 
I feel you, you weren't expecting. I, I mean, I, emphasis on the humble. I don't know. I don't feel <laughs> like I'm that big a deal. So, I mean, I'll tell you this. The, the weird thing I've learned about everybody that does what I am lucky enough to get to do, all of the authors that I admire, et cetera. Um, none of them will ever, and I, I've yet to meet Malcolm Gladwell. He might be the one person, but none of them have ever said to me that they feel like they arrived. I think what happens is you just sort of, you, you have to find this balance of tension between wanting to get your message out there a bit more, wanting to get, um, a little bit more traction, wanting to get a little bit more growth and gratitude for what you've already accomplished, but like very few people, and maybe this is even beyond just like book author, speaker type people, but just, you know, high achievement oriented alpha type people in general, they, they don't necessarily feel satisfied. So they wouldn't brag or humble brag because they're still like, there's so much left to do. And that's kind of how, how I tend to feel is like, I've been able to do some really cool things. I'm super blessed because people, it resonates with people and that allows me to do what I do, but there's still so much more left to do. So yeah, if you want to call that a humble brag, yes, but I assure you the humble, intent is more humble, on humble, humble than humble on brag. bragging it up. Caleb's going to start asking you like the official questions. Yeah. Now. Hey, what, what made you want to uh, write this book particularly? Yeah. So um, when I wrote my last book, well, actually, in both books, uh, The Myths of Creativity and Energy Management, my first two books, there are uh, there's a study from a researcher named Brian Uzi, who's become a friend and is a, is a utterly brilliant. And he was one of probably the uh, let's say the second generation, the second class of network scientists. So so academics started studying networks, computer networks, human networks, food chain networks, electrical grids, anywhere where where nodes and lines connect people. Um, in about the 1960s, 1970s, and then in the 80s and 90s, there was sort of the second generation class into early 2000s. And Brian Uzi was sort of a member of that. And his study, his study with Jarrett Spiro on uh, the internal network of Broadway shows was fascinating to me. And I, I, I was so fascinating, I found a way to write about it in two different books. And then I, and, and then I kind of had this... Um, this revelation that if this is what I'm fascinated by, I should probably take a deep dive here. And so I, I basically started reading every from the 1960s, 1970s, when the first studies of network science came out, I started reading pretty much every study, um, every significant study in and around network science, learning about kind of all of the phenomena. I mean, the, the thing that's amazing to me is that regardless of the type of network, human, electrical grid, food chain, right, computer, whatever, um, there are certain universal principles that all networks have in common that we've discovered over the last sort of like 50 years. So that really, that's what made me want to write the book was it was more like, I want to learn about this stuff. And the best way to, to force myself to learn about it by a certain period of time is to sign a deal with a publisher that I'm going to deliver a book on it. The, the big thing that I had to figure out is sort of what's the angle, mm -hmm. right? And that's where this sort of angle that if I'm studying networks, then I probably have some insights for networking, um, that, that was sort of the, the big angle. The, I mean, the big idea in this book is that we've got 50 years of network science that are teaching people principles of how the network that you're already around works. And yet everybody is buying books that are just a compendium of advice from one person at one point in time in one situation instead of from the entire network. And, and then they're going to try and apply that advice and then they're feeling inauthentic and swarmy. Well, like, of course you are, because you're not being you in that moment. You're being whoever you're listening to the advice from. So that was sort of this angle or the pitch um, was we're not going to write a networking advice book. We're going to write a book that teaches people how network, networks work. In order to do that, I have to learn how networks work, but how networks work so that you can then figure out, like, OK, what do I need to do in response to that? Gotcha. You know, you kind of you kind of mentioned one 
already, like one common mistake is trying to, you know, try to be someone else whenever it comes to networking. What would you say are some other common like networking mistakes that you see people tend to make? Yeah, I mean, so the I mean, the big the big idea is that I think people have the wrong mental model when they. I mean, networking is a it's a nine or a ten letter word. I'm not really sure. I should I should actually count it out. But we treat it like it's a four letter word, right? Is my point. Yeah. And we we do that because I think most people have this mental model that when I say networking, what I'm talking about is going to a cocktail party or a mixer or some open form event and trying to meet new people. And in fact, even when we talk about sort of online virtual networking, it's still this sort of weird mental model that it's about adding connections on LinkedIn or adding names and addresses in your phone. Like, but that's not actually the, the appropriate way to look at it. The appropriate way to look at it is that you don't grow a network, you exist inside of a network. The industry that you're in, the community that you're a part of, the friends that you have, those are all networks that you're a member of. And the better approach isn't I'm going to try and meet as many new people as possible. The better approach is I need to figure out and learn more about this network and who's connected to who and by how and and where I am inside of it and, and treat it like a three-dimensional object that I'm trying to get a map of. Most of the mistakes around networking, like being an authentic center, stem from that first faulty mental model that it's all about finding people and adding them to your a contacts app or, or whatever, when in reality, the best approach is to realize you already have a network and now we need to map it so we can sort of better serve it and in time it will serve us better as well. So one of the, the things, and you you kind of mentioned it, but the, with the mixer thing, I hate mixers. <laughs> I just do. I'm going to admit it to you. I, I do. They're awkward and, and just, it's not, it's not good. And, and so what you, a common belief is that that's an important thing to, to, to meet new people. You say something very different. Why, why you talk about shared activities with, with people. Why is it that, that people become more connected via shared activities than, than mixers? Like talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So quite frankly, mixers just don't work. Um, people, the, the best study that's been done on this is literally titled like, do people mix at mixers? And the answer is no. Right. So what we think that these events, like the goal of these events is, and we're talking about something very specific. We're not talking about every time you've ever heard someone say like, this time is reserved for networking, whatever. We're talking about, it's an open-ended event where everybody's just gonna gather together. It's a meetup, there's no structure, there's no like person we're gonna hear from, there's no um, thing to accomplish. The whole goal is just to connect, it's like speed dating for professionals, right? <laughs> um, we, we, yeah. we think, and we think the lack of structure is gonna help us. In reality, the lack of structure pushes people outside of their comfort zone such that they push back by hanging around with people they already know. And the most famous study of, of these sort of networking mixers tracked 100 executives in an executive MBA program that they threw a networking event specifically because 95% of the, the program students said, we want the opportunity to meet more, make more connections, right? So they plan this thing and they track Everyone throughout the night, they attach these little like RFID tags to everyone so that they can track who's connecting with who and for how long, et cetera. And before they do this event, they survey the executives to find out who in this program do you already know? Who have you already met? Who did you know from before, et cetera? Okay, so now we go to the actual night of the event, big open-ended structure of the event, um, open bar. So you figure there's going to be like it's going to be a fun time and people are going to get to know each other. In reality, the average executive spends 50% of his or her time with someone that they already knew, right? 
even though they only know about one third of the people in the room, right? So just randomly walking up to people should yield a better percentage of time talking to uh, new people than what actually happens because people spend a disproportionate amount of time with people they already know or avoiding sort of conversation already. This is probably why you hate it. It's just sort of like awkward and weird. And it's weird. You, you respond to that weirdness and lack of structure by going back into the comfort zone of people you already know. It turns out that these sort of shared activities, and Brian Uzi is actually the researcher that coins this term, a shared activity is different. A shared activity is a structured activity. It's any activity that draws a diverse set of people together where the stakes are – there are actually stakes. Like the big problem with networking mixers is there's no stakes whatsoever. If nothing gets done, nothing gets done. Like the, old, the worst case scenario is you didn't meet anyone, right? And, and that's not very salient in terms of something that could go wrong. Right. Right. So what we want is an activity where there are stakes. This is everything from volunteering um, from a nonprofit or building a house with Habitat for Humanity to like a pickup sport, like a joining a softball league. Um, and my my friend John Levy, I read about this in the book, does these dinners where people come together and they're not allowed to talk about who they are and what they do for the first hour. And in the first hour, they all cook the dinner together. He's divvied out the tasks and he's That's paired cool. you with someone and you have to do something. And now there's stakes. I mean, they're low stakes. Like if you burn the chicken, everyone's going to hate you. But that's not that. That's a survivable mistake. But the fact that there is something to do and accomplish, there's some level of structure that in order to accomplish it, you have to connect better with people you don't know. That no surprise, that lets you connect with people that you that forces you to interact with strangers and find ways to connect with them and work alongside of them. And so these types of activities are far better for meeting new people, especially new diverse connections um, compared to you. They're a far better activity than these unstructured activities. I mean, it's a grand irony that like the whole purpose of these sort of mixers is let's do an unstructured activity so people will meet new people. And then the fact that it's unstructured is the reason nobody meets new people. I'm curious with that, with that concept too, is the reason behind not being able to talk about who you like, what you do or who you are, is that so that you can't use that as a shield? Yeah. So is that what it is? Uh, Brian, Brian Uzi would use the term script, right? Okay. That everybody has this sort of script. Um, it, it's basically so that you can't be in work mode, right? So what a lot of people do uh, when they meet someone, especially in America, but particularly in the West in general, is the first question out of their mouth is, so what do you do? And now you're in work mode and now you're trying to figure out and even authentically and generously trying to figure out how you can help or how they can help you. Right. But you're just in that sort of work mode, whereas the, the right opportunity to connect might actually be that when you were both in seventh grade, you were both in a production of The Music Man and you both know how to sing, you know, uh, I can't think of a song from the music man right now, which is a shame. That's a good <laughs> um, musical, and neither can I. Yeah, I know, I know. I mean, I know there's the one with trouble, trouble with a capital T that rhymes with P that stands for pool. That's the only line from the entire play that I remember right now. Um, That's and impressive I don't know, that you remember that, though. Thanks. Uh, well, when I was in seventh grade, I was in a production of the music man. <laughs> So, <laughs> so, so, so that's why I thought why of that whole thing. But you get what I mean. Like you, you find some non-work reason and you're, and you're just, you're far more likely to find a reason to connect with someone. We're all multifaceted creatures, right? We are the, the best analogy I've ever heard is that people are kind of like diamonds. You ha they have so many facets that you have to hold them up to the light and turn them over and look at them from multiple angles to really appreciate them. If you stick to your script, you're only looking at somebody from the work angle. And the likelihood that you're going to find a reason to connect and build a relationship with that person because your one angle matches their one angle is really slim. But if you're both multifaceted and you're both taking the time to sort of explore multiple facets, you're just far more likely to find a reason to connect with that person. 
do you have any other examples of of some successfully done shared activities like that? Yeah, so I have, and I, I also write about him uh, in the book. I've got a good friend, Jason Gaynard, who runs an event, actually runs multiple events throughout the year, but sort of the flagship event happens now it's in the fall is an event called mastermind talks It's a three-day conference for um, entrepreneurs and he is super careful about the agenda such that like you're not actually in like a room listening to speakers that often mornings start with basically there's five or six different types of morning physical activities so you could do yoga or you could do like a crossfit type workout or you could go on a group run or you could sleep in which is what i did three of the of the four mornings i was there um <laughs> And then and then you you meet in you meet for breakfast and then you hear from sort of the first kind of content piece and then you go to lunch and then the afternoon there are structured activities that like it's mandatory to pick one and so he'll plan out and I mean he'll do extensive this is why he only does one event a year one main flagship event he'll do extensive research about what that area offers and so you can sign up for like you're gonna go mountain biking or you're gonna go skeet shooting or you're gonna go on a jeep tour or you're gonna go on a, and you have to go on one. And, and it's because he knows that these shared activities, like the content is great and it's top notch and that's why people register, but people come back because he's paying attention to the shared activities and that is uh, gonna build connections that last a lifetime, make you want to actually come back every year to reconnect with those people because it doesn't happen at an open lunch and it doesn't happen when you're listening to a lecture, it happens when you're in these shared activities. So he's built them into the conference very, very deliberately. Now I'm curious because you just, you just talked about something and I do, I, I don't know, I kind of do this. So when I go to conferences, I do conferences a little bit different. Um, I go to all the main sessions with the main speakers, but then I try to set up meetings uh, throughout the time, and there, I only might go to one or two breakouts during the conference. I, I started doing this um, about a year ago, and and what I've found is I actually learn more from just connecting with other folks at these conferences than I. I mean, I could be strict, you know, they could stone me, but like I learn more from that than I than I do from um, from the actual conference itself. Is that like is this something that's a is this a trend or is this is that just me being weird? Um, I mean, there's, it's more than just you. I, I would say, I mean, there's, there's three reasons to go to a conference and only one of them is information, right? So information is one. The second is to reconnect with, you know, in the book, we call them weak and dormant ties, but reconnect with people, you know, who don't work near you, but who you all sort of collectively go to this conference. Right. And that's what you're doing the most of, right? Which is you're, you're figuring out who else is going. You're setting up a time to grab coffee or grab lunch or just chit chat in the hallway, et cetera. Um, that's great. Right. And then, then the third reason is to try and meet new people that you're connected with. Mm. And this is where a lot of people actually take a very similar attack to you, but I think go wrong is they'll actually boast about how like, no, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I never listen to the sessions. I'm just always in the hallway trying to chat and meet. That's, that's an unstructured time. That's right. That is the definition of a mixer. You might think like if your goal is to meet new people, you're, you're probably lying to yourself. What you're actually doing is the second one, reconnecting with old people with old connections. And that's fine. But be honest about what you're doing. The, the next thing you should probably do, and I know a few people that will do this. Uh, Jason will actually do this when he attends other people's conferences is – a conference is great because it's sort of like a watering hole that draws everybody back together. We know that everybody's going to be at this conference this year. He'll go and then plan an activity, right? And, and so he'll know like th this group of 20 people that I'm familiar with 
is is all going to this conference. I'm going to invite them all to this activity that I found that looks like fun. Twelve of them are going to say yes, and now those people are going to benefit from making new connections. And and usually it'll be like a plus one thing. Like so, twelve of them are going to say yes, and they'll bring somebody else, and that's how I'll sort of meet them. Um, I have a buddy Derek Coburn that does the exact same thing. He runs. He's a financial advisor. And he runs these um, activities, shared activities for his clients. But one of the rules is they're always plus one, but that plus one is not your spouse. That plus one is who's another friend that would enjoy this. And as a result, sort of other people are becoming the reason he's connecting to new people. And he's connecting to them better because they're sharing in an activity. Huh. That's really interesting. I realized that was like six examples. No, in the no, that's good. Sorry that's about that. Fine. I just, I just need. Really, all I was looking for there, David, was for you to confirm that I'm not weird. That <laughs> I mean, good. yeah, you might yeah, that's fine. I mean, I do. I actually do the same thing. So I don't. I don't attend. I attend probably two conferences a year now as an attendee. One of them is Jason's. Um, but you know, I'm at conferences all the time as part of what I do. And I pretty much do the same thing as you. Like I am right now, I'm in going to be in New York doing a, an event two weeks from now. So I am right now in the midst of reaching out to who are my New York week ties and how do I set up with stuff? And I've literally got like, Oh, I'm having coffee with this person, then dinner with this person. Then I'm meeting this person for breakfast. Then I actually have to go speak and like earn my pay. Then I'm meeting with this person cause they're going to be at the actual conference. And, I'm, and so like, I'm, I'm building that itinerary. I'm only on the ground for like 50 hours, you know, but I'm trying to, other than sleep, trying to sort of use that as a chance to reconnect with lots of people um, who I haven't seen in a while and need to kind of reignite those weak ties. Yeah. So what, what tips would you give to someone who is trying to make the most of the network that they already have, you know, they're like through their weak ties and stuff like that. Can yeah. You also so define, can um, you also define for the audience too, what a weak tie is? Yeah, let's, yeah, let's do that. Let's start there. So if, if you think about your network as a three dimensional thing, right, the circles and lines, and if you have no idea what I'm talking about, as you're listening, go do a Google images search for the word network, you'll see a bunch of clip art, it'll fill you in. Um, but if you picture the network that you're in is that this three dimensional object that you occupy some space, there are really three types of ties um, that you have. There are your close knit ties, the people who are around you, the people you see every day, the people you cram into a booth and record a podcast with. Those are your close knit ties. Not that he's right? talking about us. No, not, not at all. Not at all. Um, those are your close knit ties. And they have a tendency. I mean, they're, they're great for sort of deep what, what uh, Robert Putman, the sociologist, calls bonding capital. They're, they're great for the value they provide in being able to have sort of a deep connection with them, a bond and that sort of thing. However, they all have access to largely the same information. There's a principle in networks called transitivity, which is a fancy way of saying if A is connected to B and B is connected to C, it's highly likely that C and A are also connected, right? And so all of your friends kind of know each other, right? So when it comes to new information, new opportunities, whether that's job leads, referrals, um, trying to set somebody up with a, a future spouse, whatever it is, those are probably not gonna come from the close-knit ties because they already know all the information that you know. Like if a close-knit tie knew something, the chances are you already know it. So they're sort of, the term uh, Ronald Burt uses is redundant, which I love because it sort of gets right to the heart of the problem with weak ties. <laughs> they're, they're wonderful people, they're also redundant. Um, then you go further out and you have two other types of ties. You have your weak ties and your dormant ties. And these are two very different things. A weak tie is a person that you know, but you don't know that well, right? Okay, I know them from work, but they work on a different floor and I see them, you know, once every couple of months. Um, this is that person at the gym that like you see him and occasionally you guys might spot each other, but you don't really talk about anything other than like his name and what does, right? These, those are weak ties, people you know, but you don't know that well. Then there's dormant ties. Dormant ties are usually people who were strong ties or stronger than weak ties and then felt for some reason or another 
time lapsed. And so that your relationship with them fell by the wayside. It's still a strong connection. These are the type of people that like you could call up, even though you haven't talked in nine months and it would feel like no time has passed. Right. And that's a dormant time. Now, now geographically or, or geometrically, if you're thinking about networks, weak ties and, and dormant ties are further away from you and your close knit cluster that you're in. But they're also close to other ties. Those other ties are different from you. They have different information. They have different opinions, different perspectives. And so you're much more likely to get the new and original information you need from those weak and dormant ties, right? All right, so that's the brief sort of top line. Now, your question was about what can you do if you're trying to really sort of maximize your network or scale your network, et cetera. Yep. The thing that most people do is ignore their weak and dormant ties. I think the first step is to start developing a system where you're checking in with your weak and dormant ties. This is what you do at conferences occasionally, right? That's one thing, but how can we sort of build off of that and keep doing it? Most people ignore them entirely. A few people read in a networking advice book, because I'm, I'm not the first person to talk about weak ties, read in a networking advice book that like weak ties are good for job leads. So they continue to ignore them until they get laid off and then they beg their weak ties for any information. And then smart, savvy people continuously sort of check in or ping their weak ties so that they're getting access to new information. They have a better sense of what's going on in that area of the network. And if it comes to it where they can uh, they either can help the weak tie by providing some new information or referral or that weak tie can help them. It's just one in a series of conversations that's that's ongoing. That's a far better way to go about sort of cultivating and creating value for your network so that that value spills over to you. So. One of the things that I that, that that's interesting to me, just because whenever I think of of, of weak ties, it, I feel kind of awkward about about talking to them because I'm not connected heavily to them. What? How do you how do you continue? You said ping them. How do you do that without being weird? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, yeah, because you're absolutely right. It'd be really it's awkward weird. if you just like, hey, this guy Dave Burkett said I should talk to you because I haven't talked to you in nine months. What's going on? <laughs> so. so <laughs> There's a couple things you can do. I have found that the most useful one for people who have either read the book or have talked about these ideas is literally I call it sort of the Facebook trick, right? Um, if you're Facebook and if, if you don't use Facebook, maybe LinkedIn or, or if you use any sort of social media, odds are so at some point in the last three years, you've thought about deleting it because there's so many people that you're like, I met you at a conference once. I said yes to your friend request. And now I'm looking at pictures of your uncle in the hospital. Like, I, and I don't understand why. Right. Um, most of us have those people. Our newsfeed is sort of overloaded with information from weak ties. And we see that as an annoyance. In reality, it's kind of an opportunity. Right. So so whether it's Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever, using these sort of tools to monitor what's going on with your weak ties can provide you with a, um, a quick hit of information that could potentially be the springboard to reach back out. So let me give you an example. So one of the things I try and do is a, as a kind of a regular practice is when I'm scrolling mindlessly through my newsfeed looking for funny cat photos, because we all do it, um, when I'm scrolling mindlessly through my newsfeed and I see somebody announce something that's going on in their life, like, hey, we're really excited, we're about to go on vacation to Maui, right? We've been saving up for a year and here we go, we're gonna go spend a week in Hawaii. I, most people will see that and they'll click like or they'll comment or, or they'll do that thing where they write congratulations so the confetti goes off, you know what I'm talking about. Yep. Um, and and none of that is visible to the person because if you've ever had a birthday on Facebook, you realize that when everybody is liking and commenting and posting, you don't even notice it, right? Yep. Um, LinkedIn, the equivalent would be a work anniversary. I don't know if you've ever had a work anniversary on LinkedIn. It's I know exactly awful. what you're talking about. Oh, yeah. 
right? <laughs> Suddenly you have to delete 400 messages from people that are, but these are, again, these are opportunities to connect with somebody. So the trick is to use that and now go to a little bit deeper medium. If you have their email, email. If you have their, their cell number, text them. If you're close enough or familiar enough with them to sort of make a call out of the blue, call them. Wh whatever is the appropriate medium that is not in that same service. And use that as your excuse to catch back up with them, right? So you'll say, hey, I just saw you were going uh, to Maui. That's really exciting, right? Um, in this case, I'm going to pretend that I know anything about Maui, right? Like we were just there uh, a couple years ago. If you have a free night, you should totally check out this restaurant. It was fantastic, right? So what am I doing? I am using that as my reason to reconnect with them so it's not awkward. I'm providing something that could potentially be of value to them, which is a restaurant recommendation or something else. And, and if I can't provide something of value to them, I'm going to do that thing where I give them coolness points by talking about how cool and amazing it is and how I'm insanely jealous and blah, 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 right? Whatever, whatever makes them sort of feel good. Um, and then at the very end, I'm going to go, you know, besides that, what else is new with you? And I'm going to use that as the reason to sort of engage in a conversation. Now, you probably already had this happen to you once, not intentional, but it just sort of did. And then you realize you end up trading two or three emails back and forth and kind of catching up a little bit or making an agreement to like, let's have a phone call when we get back, right? Or, or something like that. So yeah. this is a much... This happens naturally and organically. What I'm recommending is just be intentional about it. Try and set like a goal of like do this once a week to people that you're connected to. Um, it's a very it's less awkward because you're using information that they're broadcasting and it's publicly available, and you're also providing value, and then you're inviting them into a conversation. It's not just that like hey, I haven't talked to you in a while, and this guy in a book said I should. It's a much more this valuable. This guy in a book said I should. <laughs> David, the next and we we've talked about, you know, reconnecting with weak ties and stuff like that. But one of the things that I tend to struggle with is whenever I'm meeting someone for the first time. And I was just wondering, do you have any like what are some conversation do's and don'ts for when you're networking with someone that you don't know or maybe you may have never met before? I'm just going to give you one big don't. And it goes back to sort of John Levy's trick. Right. Don't ask. So what do you do as your first opening question? Right. A couple couple reasons. Number one is that if Gallup is right and only 18 percent of people are highly engaged in their job, that means 82 percent of people don't want to answer your question because they're not proud of what they do. Right. Oh my. It, it's, it's not that's the crazy. thing that's you would think about it like that. Right. That, that yeah, they, it's, yeah. It means it's not the thing that's central to their identity. If you're not in that 18 percent that's highly engaged, then this is not the thing you draw your identity from. Right. Um, so people don't want to talk about it most of the time. And you, and you know this because sometimes you ask people and they go, oh, well, I, this is what I do for work, but what I really want to do, like that's a big signal that people are not happy. Um, the other reason is that, remember, we were talking about sort of the scripts and the work context and how it sort of stays one dimensional, especially if you're meeting them in a work context. Asking a question like that sort of signals that that's the only facet of them that you want to explore, and that's the only facet that you're willing to um, you're willing to explore. So there's a couple other questions to, to flip from don't to do. There's a couple other questions you can ask. The important thing is you ask one that feels natural to you and one that's in a different context. So some people will ask, like my favorite thing to ask is like, you know, oh, so tell me, you know, what's going on or what's happened in the last couple of months that's really excited you which you could talk about work if you wanted to. You can tell me about that TPS report that you just wrote, if that's your thing. Or you can talk to me about how your kid just learned how to walk, right? Or, or whatever, whatever you want to disclose. It's a very open-ended question. One of my buddies will, will ask, um, he'll, he's a little more forward than I. That's a very casual question, in my opinion. He's more forward. He'll be like, 
what's the thing no one asks you that you really wish somebody would ask you about? Right. Um, which is basically saying like, what facet do you want? But you can do a bunch of other ones. Where did you grow up? Uh, what's your favorite superhero? Right. Um, who, what's a charitable cause that you support? There's a bunch of whatever question, again, is natural to you and explores a different area than work, especially if you're meeting in a work context. Like you'll get back to that eventually. You've got time to explore that. But be deliberate about it. Let's explore a couple other facets of each other's personalities first, because the odds that we're going to find a reason to connect in those is far more likely. And then in addition, in the book, we talk about this principle called multiplexity, which basically says that if you find multiple facets to connect with someone with, you build a deeper relationship uh, and a stronger relationship faster with them. So it really pays to be exploring these kind of multiple facets in terms of your likelihood of connection and the strength of that connection. All right. Now, this is something I'm curious about, and I may or may not be trying to use this to get dates. So I'm just going to preface it with that. How, how do I find new people to connect with in my network? We talked about weak ties, but how do I find new people or, or, or where maybe you talked about like watering holes? Where are some, what, what are some things to do to connect with new people? And just keep in mind, I may or may not use this to get a date. <laughs> so, so in watering holes is actually not my term, and it's not a term from a, a social scientist. It's a term from a woman named Pam Slim, who's a brilliant, brilliant entrepreneur that's written several books now. Um, but watering holes is a good place. It, it, the, the good thing about those is that you can say, like, I want to meet people in this industry. Well, where do they gather? Right? What's the event, or what's the group on Facebook, or what's the what's the thing that they gather? That's a good place to go. Honestly, where most people also fail is that you you are so the whole like we talk about this principle of six degrees of separation um and we talk about it like a, it's a joke we might even talk about six degrees of kevin bacon right all of which we explore in friend of a friend hint but kevin bacon's not actually that special um but all of us really are connected by about five or six maybe seven introductions if you live in like tanzania um there's nothing against tanzania i'm just trying to think of somewhere remote <laughs> um but all of us are actually far more connected to the other seven plus billion people on the planet than we think. And actually, which means like there's an exponential number of potential connections, one introduction away from you, one degree of separation out, right? Or two, that'd be two degrees. There's, there's a whole wealth of people that you meet, but most of us don't bother to explore it. We either do that thing where we like LinkedIn stalk somebody and then we notice they're introduced to this specific person and we beg for an introduction or we ignore it entirely. One of the questions that I like to ask when I'm in conversation, especially conversation with weak and dormant ties, is I'll just throw out as sort of an exploratory question like, you know, I was thinking a lot about television the other day. Who do you know in television? The key question there is who do you know in blank, right? Who do you know in blank with blank being whatever industry, geography, ideology, right? Whatever faith, whatever it is, whatever I'm trying to find more people in, I'm asking a lot of different people in my network, who do you know in blank, whatever that is. I'm not asking for an introduction. Um, if they offer one, maybe it'd be good. Maybe the timing's not right. What I'm trying to do is get a map at who is on the fringes of my network, who's one introduction away, so that I have a better sense of what's the appropriate route to go when I need to start meeting those people, right? So, you know, 
I mean, you might not want to be as bold as like, who do you know that's single and of the opposite gender, right? <laughs> Why not, though? I was going to say, I don't know. Todd's pretty I, bold. I would do that. See, you, I, I mean, so so you, you could ask. You have to be sure in that situation that they would want to actually tell you real names of real people. So they have to be sort of on your side in that. Um, but, you know, you should also be thinking about watering holes. Like, where do single people go, right? Especially, and it's different at different ages, right? Like, definitely the early 20-somethings, it's a, there's a whole lot more watering holes for single people than late 20s, early 30s, et cetera. So you also have to be thinking about that question. But really, it's a matter of figuring out where, if you want to deliberately meet somebody in an industry, figuring out where do they gather and then getting yourself there, and then asking this sort of question, who you know in blank, that really explores the fringes of the network. So, so I guess my follow-up to that is you, you talk about asking the, the, the person. Um, with that, because Caleb and I, we do a lot of this, is, is there, are there, I, I, I don't know exactly how to phrase it, but are there ways of doing that to get people to connect you? Because you said, you know, if they, out, if they offer to connect, that's great. If not, um, you can kind of explore that. Are there ways of, of, of kind of getting people to connect you with other people? Or is that like you just wait for them to offer? Yeah. So generally I wait for them to offer. Right. Um, so I'll say who, you know, in blank a lot of times if there's a, if there's a strong connection, I know. So here, so here's the thing I should back up actually. Every time you make an introduction part person A to person B, right? If person A wants to meet person B and you're making the introduction, you are vouching for person A, right? You're recommending, you might not feel you're recommending them. You might feel like you're only just trading people's email address, but you are vouching for them, right? And so you have to know a couple different things ahead of time. You have to know that the strength of your connection to who you're asking for an introduction from is strong enough that they feel comfortable vouching for you. You also have to sort of get an idea of this person that I want to meet do I, um, does, does this, in, the person that's going to make the introduction, are, are they a strong enough connection to the person that I want to meet? Or am I going to have like, you know, the stench of the person that introduced me sort of on me when I meet them too? For, for all of these, there's a lot of reasons that, that can kind of go wrong. So I shy away from asking people for specific introductions. And I often ask that, who do you know in blank question? And the, the reason, the other reason that question is so good is not just are you going to get multiple names that represent people who are in that industry, you're going to get the names that that person is already comfortable introducing you to, right? If I know someone and it is a little sly, but if I know someone and I know that I don't want to introduce them to you, if you ask me, who do I know in the industry that that person's in, I'm just not going to bring them up, right? Or I might bring them up with the caveat of like, but I don't really know them that well, et cetera, right? So I'm usually only going to list names that I'm familiar with. And then you may or may, you may, or may pro offer that sort of introduction. I think it's better to sort of ask this question lots of times and get and get people used to the idea that you ask this question a lot and get people used to the idea that you offer to give introductions a lot. Then when you do ask, it's just one more in a series of conversations. Um, but when you do ask, ask uh, if they feel comfortable doing it and, but, and ask with the understanding that they're going to want to check with that other person first, that they're going to want to practice what I call the double opt-in. I don't call it that. It's the term for it. Um, everybody calls it that the double opt-in introduction, right? Where they're going to go to that other party first and check in. And so ask with the understanding that while they might feel comfortable, the other person's not ready yet, et cetera. And that that's also fine. Um, so you have to keep a couple of those different things in mind. And then if you do, then you're going to have a very authentic, very empathetic sounding request. It's going to work far better than sort of in the, in the networking advice books, these sort of phrase that pays magic words to use. Um, those are all great, but those are why you feel inauthentic. Just understand and have empathy for where that person is 
um, and an understanding that the person you're trying to meet may not may not be the right time to meet you. And if you have those two different things, you're going to come off feeling authentic and empathetic and it's going to be fine. So I want to hit back on something that you talked about earlier. You know, you said that we have a tendency to be to get attracted to the people who are who are very similar to us. You know, we the people that we know and the people who even look like us. You know, how how can we combat that tendency in ourselves so that we can have a more diverse and effective network? You know, so what's most interesting, probably the biggest surprise in the entire book is that it's actually less about combating that um, that instinct in yourself. I mean, most of us are not bigots, right? If you, if you ask most people, you know, are you a closed-minded bigot who hates people who aren't like you? Most people, 99% of people are going to say no, right? Most of us are not. Most of us want and understand the need for diversity, et cetera. What's interesting is that we do have a tendency toward the self-similar. We spend a bit more time with people who are like us, et cetera. Um, and overcoming that is is good. But the, the interesting thing, when you look at longitudinal, which is a fancy term for saying studies that are conducted over multiple years, um, when you look at longitudinal studies of networks and this sort of self-similar rule or what we the fancy term for it is homophily, um, what you find is that it's actually much more a network effect than anything else. So you start off with that close cluster of people that are similar to you, right, because of that general sort of small scale tendency. And then when you start meeting new people, they're more likely to, you're more likely to meet those new people as introductions through the people that are your close knit ties, which means that those people are going to be more likely similar to you, et cetera. And it sort of cascades or compounds. And so you end up, a lot of people end up having a less diverse network than they would want, even though they know that they need a more diverse network. Uh -huh. So what's the, what's the solution to this? The solution to this is to pay a disproportionate amount of time to the people that are close to you, but very different from you. We all have two or three of these people, right? These people are going to need to be our brokers to the communities that we want to know more people about. If you don't have those, then you go back to the watering hole trick and you realize, like, I need to get deeply embedded in this community fast. Where does it gather? I'm going to be super vulnerable and just go there. For most people, that's a little uncomfortable. So I don't recommend we start there unless you're willing to do that risk. But for most of us, it's that. Find the people that are close to us that are most dissimilar from us and pay a disproportionate amount of time to them. Ask for a disproportionate number of introductions from them and use them as sort of the um, bridge to that broader community. And I mean, I say use them, it sounds mean, but also know that you're going to be beneficial to them for that same reason. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the next thing I want to ask you about is what are the benefits of networking with people who are in different fields of work than we are? For instance, you know, why, why should a business person want to network with an artist or why should a professional athlete maybe want to network with an academic or something along those lines? Yeah, so this is actually where um, two of my books sort of collide. My first book was The Mystic Creativity, and one of the ideas we explore in that, um, it's not original to me, and here's why, we explore the idea that all ideas are combinations of pre-existing ideas. In other words, no idea is actually wholly original, right? Um, and if all ideas are combinations of pre-existing ideas, when you start with that mentality, you start to realize that, you realize that most of the groundbreaking innovations, most of the disruptive innovations, most of like the most uh, kind of big things, they start out as a combination of uh, ideas from two disparate fields, right? I mean, I'll, I'll give you a great example because I'm going to redeem myself on this Music Man thing. Um, <laughs> Hamilton is the biggest musical on the planet Hold on, right have now. you Googled, you've been Googling this since, since we talked about that. So no, just, no, no, I, no. I feel like that's a thing. No, so, so Hamilton is the biggest musical on the planet right now. <laughs> Hamilton mixes Lin-Manuel Miranda's background in sort of rap opera, right? This idea of I'm going to do music theater, but I'm going to do it with sort of an edgy urban minority community bend using a lot of hip hop, rap lyrics, et cetera, with the, one of the most 
I should say one of the most entertaining of an incredibly boring genre of books, the 400 page history book, right? Lin-Manuel Miranda reads this biography from Hamilton. It is entertaining, but it's also super long. And he decides to sort of smash those two ideas together, right? In, so that's the sort of creative miss of creativity approach in the sociology and social network literature. What what those are usually referred to as Lin-Manuel Miranda is a broker between two structural holes. And I'm, I'm actually realizing now that Lin-Manuel Miranda is not in friend of a friend, but he really should be. Uh, so I'm kicking myself for that. Um, Whenever so, you write the updated version, just put him right in there. Yeah, I'll just throw him in there. Yeah. Um, so what we, what we call a broker between a structural hole, a structural hole is a, a point in the network where uh, two different clusters are connected. So we know we naturally cluster together. We have those close knit ties, et cetera. As we all sort of cluster together, that creates gaps in the network between two different clusters and two different communities. And if we need new and different ideas that combine very disparate ideas, those are going to come from two different clusters, which means that the the people who span the gap, who connect those two different communities are the ones that are the, the absolute best way I can describe it is to steal a quote from sociologist Ronald Burt, where he says the people that span the gap over structural holes have the highest risk of good ideas. You're speechless. It was the it was the Hamilton references, wasn't it? <laughs> the, the Hamilton. I, well, I'm processing through that. That's good. No, that's good. It, it, yeah, I'm just let's just mic drop and leave. <laughs> we're done. Or, we'll no. just be right. done now. <laughs> no, we're not done because I got another question I want to ask you. What? Is it about so, so you know, I I absolutely love how you finished the book because as I was going through it, I did not see just the ending of it coming. You know, you finish it with almost like a warning of, you know, on the importance of who we surround ourselves with. So can you just talk about why it's important that we evaluate our friends and even our friends of friends? Yeah. So, I mean, this is a, this is sort of a trite saying in a lot of personal development literature, right? You're the, you're the average of the five people you surround yourself with or show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Right. And we say these things and like, Particularly like we hear a lot when we're in the teen years and the and the early 20 years because our parents are trying to get us to stop hanging out with the scruffy kid from down the street. Right. And so we, we hear it and we get sort of reinforced with that. What's what's interesting to me is that it's it's both true and not true. It's true in the sense that the people that are around us influence us. It's not true in the sense that it's not limited to five. By no means is it limited to five. So about 10 years ago, these two researchers, Nicholas Krasakos and James Fowler, um, who are utterly brilliant, they used um, existing data from a really, really long running and really rich data source, the Framingham Heart Study. They, they used that because the questions in there involved not just health questions, but also social questions. They used that to construct a network of basically the entire city of Framingham, Massachusetts, and, and show how that network evolved over 30 years. And in particular, they could look at certain issues. So the first one they did was obesity. And they found that if you are that, that you they found that your friends make you fat, which is kind of funny. Um, but they also found that your friend of a friend, even if you haven't met them, is has a statistically significant influence on your likelihood of becoming obese. And even friend of a friend of a friend. So now we're three degrees out. Three degrees of influence is what they actually call this effect. And there's still a statistically significant effect. And this is not, I mean, because you're doing it over a 30-year period of time, this is not just the tendency for obese people to hang out with each other. This is different. This is as you hang out with 
certain people, they, the norms that they think, what, what's the level of appropriateness in terms of calorie consumption? What's the level of like, oh, this, this body fat level is acceptable, but above this, I should probably get serious, right? Those things influence us in subtle ways. But if the people around you influence you, then it just makes sense that the people that are around them influence them and that in turn influences you. And the people around them, around them, influence them and that influences you. And so we see this effect three degrees of separation out. We also see it in smoking rates. We see it in happiness and life satisfaction. We see it in, in socioeconomics and we see it in a variety of fields. It's been replicated multiple, multiple times. And it speaks to that idea that, you know, you said it, I didn't see it coming, which is cool for me. It's my sort of M. Night Shyamalan moment in the book. Oh in my reality, gosh. <laughs> in reality, though, I think it sort of connects the opening thesis of the book, which is, again, you don't have a network. You exist inside of a network. Yeah. And that, that network influences you in ways that you probably haven't even thought of yet, which means it's time to stop being deliberate about just who's close-knit around us and running up the count on how many connections and start being deliberate and intentional about the entire sort of community that we're in, the network that we're in, and the ways that it influences us. Interesting. So, well, so one of the things that we always do just as we're wrapping up here um, is we always have a couple of questions that we ask. And uh, so the first one that, that I'm just always curious about is what's what's one thing you've started doing that has helped you a lot? And that could be professionally, that could be personally, um, either one of those. So um, I, have, I have two kids. I have two boys. They're four and six. And I this isn't actually something I started doing. It's something they started doing to me. And it's pretty awesome. So my wife, <laughs> um, my wife's family grew up doing this thing, which when they went to bed, they, you know, they redo the kids, they put them in bed, but they ask this question before bed, what was the favorite part of your day? And when you do it to a kid, it's sort of cute. You get to hear a little bit about their day and they get to like end their day on a high note because they're thinking back to this favorite memory, whatever. Well, about a year ago, my older son started asking us that question back. And like they now both of them will literally not let us go to sleep until we tell them one. Right. Which is cool from the effect of like it means I have to think back and find something sort of I'm gratitude for or whatever. This is where those sort of gratitude journals come from. But it also I found that over time, it also means I have to be more deliberate through the whole day because like I have to do something cool. that I have to do something that a six year old <laughs> would find cool that day so that at 730 at night, I have something to tell them about in my favorite part of the day. And, when, and in a weird way, when you when you live your life trying to impress a six year old, trying to seek out activities and high points in your day that would impress a six-year-old, you have a better day. You really do. And so, and so that has helped me tremendously over the last year. I sort of backed into it. It's a total coincidence, um, but it's now sort of one of these hugely beneficial rituals that we have in our family that I didn't expect to be as beneficial as it is. So another one that, that's interesting for me is, how, is, I'm just curious, how do, you, how do you learn best? This is the learner's corner. So we're always interested in how people learn. Is there an app that you use? Um, is there a program that you found to be really helpful for you? Like what's, what's the thing? Like for me, it's audible. Like I listen to, to books all the time. Uh, I mean, I, I, I listen and read books a lot of times. So I'm a, I'm a voracious reader and then I have like a hard copy book because I like the art form that is a published book. I have an audio book going and then I usually have an ebook going because when I travel, I don't take the hard copy book with me. So I have those sort of two or three of those going. Um, I usually I try and read around a subject. So if I'm trying to, like I, I said this with the network science thing. So I, when I decided this is what I wanted to study, 
the very first thing I did was I had two or three connections who I knew were in network science. Brian Uzi was one and there were a few other connections. And I emailed, I got on the phone with all of them and I said, hey, what are the 10 most uh, impactful discoveries of this, of network science in the last 50 years, right? Which is also the entire history of the field. But what are the 10 most impactful? And I had them give me lists and those lists overlapped probably seven or eight out of the 10, right? So now I know like, okay, these are the things I need to study. Now I need to go backtrack and go, what are the most significant papers on this? Who are the most significant thinkers? I sort of, and so it's sort of reading around each of those principles. And over time you learn, sort of, I like, I like to joke that I have a master's degree in network science. It's just from my publisher, not from a <laughs> university, right? Um, because I wrote a thesis. It's a, it's this book, right? But, but um, so that's what I tend to do is, is I'll, I'll see if I know someone in that field, I'll sort of survey them on who are the influential thinkers and then I'll read around it. I won't read a book on it. I'll read three or four of them um, so that I can see it from a couple different angles. It's even better if I know that two or three of those authors disagree about something, um, although it's, it's really hard. And this is something that I had to grow into because I think most of us, when we start reading nonfiction, we approach it with this idea that that is the right perspective. And I'm just going to read that thing and I'm going to adopt the author's perspective on that. And so you have to grow over time into this realization that like that's the author's perspective on it. It may not be mine by the time I'm done surveying the other authors so one final question that i always love to ask is what are you learning right now <laughs> um i'm not sure i can tell you um <laughs> well, so the, i mean the reason is so when whenever you write a book you get a couple different inklings of an idea and uh you i get around four or five of them and usually only one of them survives the hunger games of that sort of initial research um and so i don't know which one it is yet um, so I can't tell you because then I'd be like committing to write a book and start <laughs> speaking about a topic that I might not actually do. Um, I will say that that final chapter, the idea of who's around us and influences us is something really interesting to me. Um, there's three or four ideas inside of that vein, and I don't know which one's going to win. Whichever one doesn't run to the cornucopia, whichever one heads for the trees and finds a bow is the one this that's going to win. This is hilarious. Oh, my gosh. We have Hunger, <laughs> Hunger Game references now. Oh, Lord. Oh. Well, David, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. If people want to continue to learn from you and find your book, where's the best place for them to do that? So uh, the, the best place is probably the show notes for this episode because you guys are keeping better track of it than I am. So you can probably click over and all of that. The best place <laughs> to find me is davidberkus.com. Um, really weird last name. So the domain was open X many years later, which was great. Um, and on there we've got, I mean, you can connect with me on whatever your favorite social is there. There's a bunch of resources about this book and the prior books that are all free. Um, so you can check those out before you decide the book to buy the book. I mean, I hope you buy the book in triplicate, but you know, you could check out all oh, those yeah. resources for free anyway. Um, and then, yeah, and then we can keep that conversation going. So davidbrooks.com is the second best place to go. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. So Todd, that was such a fun conversation. No, it wasn't. David. It was boring. So what's what's something that you learned from our talk with David? Oh, my goodness. For one, that if you come on our show, you better know about Music Man. <laughs> and you better have watched The Hunger Games. And you better know about Hamilton. That's pretty profound. Thank you. No. So <clears throat> I think that he, he kind of changed the game for, for me a little bit in, in, in this one thing. Um, people don't don't necessarily know this, but we always we like to ask people after like when off the off air and stuff. We like to ask people like for connections and just knowing you know if we can have other people come on the show that 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 we know. It's just the way we do it. 
he changed the game for how I ask those questions and how I how I talk about that. And 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 here's here's how. Um, I think generally whenever I'm I'm asking somebody if they know somebody who does something, um, I'm doing it from the perspective of I'm trying to gain something. And what he showed is no, it's it's more of an investment where it, it's it's a it, it is kind of a relationship and trust being built because now that person is vouching for you and and all of that and it just kind of changed how I thought about that. The other thing that <clears throat> that I really started thinking differently about with this is is um, how I think about uh, conferences and I I said in the the episode how I do conferences, but really kind of doubling down on that and being super intentional about that time to to be able to reach out and, and kind of connect with those weak ties that he talks about. Yeah, I think one of the big things that stood out to me was whenever he was talking about um, conversation starters and yep. he said that you shouldn't ask, yep. what do you do for work? Because most people aren't passionate about it. Instead, asking the question, what are you excited about yeah. right now? Yep. So that was one of my big takeaways. That was a crazy one. That was I yeah, and the statistics. What did he say? Something like eighty two percent. Was 82%. it eighty two? That's crazy. Eighty two percent of people like are not passionate about what they do. Yeah, and yet we ask that question all the time. We that's literally how we start almost every conversation with a person I, that we don't know. I know that is crazy. Now, if you learned a lot from this episode, hit us up on Twitter at Learners Podcast or do it on Twitter or. On Instagram at Learners Corner at the Learners Corner, and let at, us know what you learned Learners about. Yeah. Now, next week we have a great episode Boom. for you. Yeah, yeah. And to make sure that you don't miss that episode, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Overcast, Google Play, just all of those. Download all just of do those it. podcast apps and just do it to subscribe on all of them. Because then it makes us look cool. Exactly. Let us know what you're learning about as well. Let us know. Maybe some of the things that you're reading, some of the podcasts that we're li- that you're listening to. We always love to continue to learn all that stuff from you as well. You know, I just realized something. When you talk, or like just in this podcast in general, I make a lot of noises. Like I just like do stuff like boom or uh huh or yeah or like do it. Like I just make noises. Yep. That's weird. Now I weirded yep. myself out. All right, sorry. We got to wrap this thing up. Let's get going. Thanks so much for listening today today's podcast. Don't forget, leave a rating and write a review on the podcast Do it. on iTunes. I just did it again. Dang it. It's one of the best ways that you could show your appreciation for the show. And let us know what you're learning through there. Let us know what how we could continue to improve, what topics you would like us to cover, what guests you would like us to interview, all of that good stuff. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. My name is Kayla Mason. My name is Todd Hicksonball. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing. Deuces, y'all.